All right, here we go. Let's start. Let's start. Let's start. Welcome in everybody to Wednesday Night Bible Study here on the channel Tim Hatch Live. That is youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. Would you give the like, the, but, the like button a hit? Would you give the subscribe button a click? And would you give that notification bell a click? That way you get notified every time we go live or every time we post new content here on the channel. It is Deep Dive Bible Study, Kings of Compromise, part 16, as we take a look finally at the life of Elijah. Can you believe that? That's where we are. Part 16, Kings of Compromise. Let me do something real quick here on the screen in case you're watching by video. I'm going to take this word Kings and I'm going to cross it out. Why? Because from here on out, at least until, well, halfway through Second Kings, the Kings really don't have anything to do with what happens in the story. Everything starts to shift from here. And the shift is from the kings, the political leaders of the nation of Israel, to the prophets that God sends to the nation. And I bring that up right off the bat to share this simple truth for you before we get anywhere else tonight. It is not the political leaders, the democratically elected leaders or the self-imposed dictators of our world that cause God's plans to be accomplished. They are simply tools in his hand. They are simply pawns on his chessboard. No, 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 no. It is the word of God spoken through the prophets and people of God that move the kingdom of God forward to literally affect every other kingdom of this world. And that's what I love about this portion of first and second Kings. So from first Kings chapter 17, all the way to second Kings chapter nine, we have the stories of Elijah, Elisha, and Jehu, these men of God that God raises up to bring correction, rebuke, teaching, and movement to God's work in the darkest times of Israel's history. So with that in mind, let's get into the Kings of Compromise. Let me go here right off the bat. This is where we are in First uh, Kings chapter 16, in case you weren't with us last week. Ahab reigns in Israel. And I have that there on purpose because I want you to see that this guy, okay, this guy is <laughs> the one in charge right now, Ahab. Ahab is worse than every other king before him. He is the son of Omri. He did more evil than all who were before him. And then this little moniker here in verse 31, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now, uh, I, this is the first king to worship Baal in Israel. And this is why the times were dark. I mean, you have to think about how dark did these times have to be for the king to worship Baal. This is the the picture. This is the season in which Elijah comes to the center stage of Israel's existence. And that's going to shape how we respond now to the rest of the um 
the story. So many preachers and teachers love First Kings chapter 17, but they often forget to paint the picture of where Israel is at this time. We have been talking about that from the beginning of the studies that Solomon brought up to this climactic moment in history, the kingdom of Israel, and then it after Solomon, it just starts to deteriorate. Well, actually during the last part of Solomon's reign and then through Solomon's son, Rehoboam and then Jeroboam, the kingdom splits. Uh, they both start to deteriorate. The, the southern kingdom has these little blips of revival. The northern kingdom continues to deteriorate right into their exile to, into Assyria. Uh, there, is, there is no hope ultimately for the northern kingdom long term. And it's a dark season. It's a dark season for them. But God is speaking in the dark seasons. Amen. God speaks to us in the dark seasons. Give me a high five in the chat if you've ever had God speak to you. <laughs> in the dark seasons of your life. Maybe he's speaking to you right now. In fact, I think that God clearly speaks most often when times are darkest. That's how we hear him. That's how we know it's him because it's so dark. He becomes that much clearer to us. Amen. So with that in mind, let me pray and we'll go through the text of first Kings chapter 17 and get into the study. Father, thank you for the chance to hear your word, study it and receive it. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you and in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer in Jesus name. Amen. Let's go through the text. Okay. Where are we at in first Kings chapter 17? The question is, who's the source of your life? Who is the source of your life? That's the question that 1 Kings chapter 17 is going to ask. Now, Israel believes that there is a, 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 another God that is their source, Baal. I keep saying Baal because that's how you pronounce it. It sounds funny. I, felt, I sound like a sheep, but it's really how you say it. It's Baal. And they were looking to the, the gods of the pagan nations around them because of the influence of the house of Omri. Now the house of Omri is where Ahab comes from. And I can put this back up on the screen here, just to remind you. And just to give you some, some context here, Omri was a successful politician. He was a good, he was a good King on the outside. He, um, initiated great trade agreements with the foreign nations around Israel. He brought peace to the polity, to the, to, to the polity. He brought, uh, prosperity, to the nation, but he also introduced spiritual pluralism and he made foreign alliances and allegiances with pagan kings. He was a, he was a political sa politically savvy king, but he was a spiritually bankrupt king. And you can have both. You can have a politically savvy king who is also spiritually bankrupt. In fact, I believe that our country has had several presidents like that and very recently. Now, now, here was the problem, though, for God's people. God was to be their source, and there was no way God would not allow himself to be the source of his people. They were his people. They were to represent what it looked like if we trusted the God of heaven and earth. And so here they are, starting to act like the nations around them, and starting to trust the things that the nations around them trust. And Omri is leading them in this direction. And the people are starting to think, this is how you prosper. You prosper by following the, the, the ways of this world. A lot of Christians are like that. They start listening to their secular counterparts and think, well, it's working for them. That'll, that'll, work, that'll work for me. So they'll do life the way pagans do it. And they'll think, well, that's just supposed to be how you do it now. I'll give you an example. Young people who are tempted to move in with their, with their uh, partners, with their, 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 their um, girlfriends and boyfriends. 
they're following the pagan way of life. Okay. Uh, uh, older people who, who believe that it's, it's a culturally appropriate to let the kids lead the way to let the kids follow their feelings are following the pagan ways of this world. People who don't tithe and don't put God first financially are part are, are following the ways of this pagan world. And they do it because they look on the outside at the world around them and they think, okay, that's how you succeed. This is where Israel was looking on the nation's plot at this point, their plight, I'm sorry, at this point, they looked successful because Omri made them plurally religious and politically savvy, but ultimately they were spiritually bankrupt. And because they were God's people, God would not let them get away with that. And that is to illustrate this, this environment. If there's one thing that scripture makes clear, right from Genesis to Revelation, it is there is one God over heaven and earth. There is one way to him, Jesus Christ, his son, and all other forms of religious faith are null and void, empty and powerless. And I want you to hear that as clearly as you can. (laughs) There is one God, one way to him, and all other religious forms of faith are empty and powerless. This culture today, now more than ever before in America, does not believe that. Religious pluralism is in, it's in vogue, it's popular. This is why when you have a conversation with somebody who believes in God, and the moment the conversation leads to the name Jesus, it gets very tense in the conversation. Amen? Have you ever been there? You're talking about faith, you're talking about God, you're talking about hope, and all these, you know, kind of euphemisms around religious practice. Mentioning Jesus just kind of throws a, a, a dagger into their hearts. Oh, yeah, don't get too serious. Why? Because Jesus is fixed. He is firm. He is who he is. You cannot deviate from what scripture reveals about him. The idea of God, we can all invent in our own minds. We can all make, make up the, the God that we think exists. But Jesus literally came, historically lived on this earth and revealed the true and fullest nature of God's character to the world. And he was hated by all sides. We talked about this on the deep end last night. He was hated by all sides, religious, irreligious people, powerful people, weak people, all kinds of people. And he was attacked and vilified because he was representing who God is. And in our hearts, scripture reveals that our hearts reject that truth. So a pluralistic society is a, is one that is common. Historically, it's common. Don't think that this is a, a new progressive movement in our culture to embrace all faiths as equal and valid. That's not new. That's as old as first Kings. Actually, it's as old as the book of Genesis because Genesis talks about God raising up one family, the, through the Abrahamic covenant to speak to all the nations of the world and bring them through back to God through that one family. So religious pluralism is not new. And anybody who thinks that they're being like, I don't know, um, groundbreaking or unique because they believe all faiths are equally the same and it's okay, whatever you believe, as long as you're sincere, this is not an advancement. It is actually a regression to ancient times. I was reading an article in the Hollywood reporter and they were discussing the religious nature of the show uh, the Good Place. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that. This is a picture of Ted Danson, and uh, I think that's Kirsten Bell, who is who are the stars. It's about a girl who dies and goes to heaven accidentally. I watched like the first three episodes, and I was kind of done with it right away. And 
the first scene or the first uh, episode of the show when she gets to heaven and Ted Danson is kind of like the heaven representative. And I don't know much more about the show than that. And she asks the question, who was right about all this? The Hindus, the Buddhists, the Muslims. And Ted Danson's character responds, well, every religion got about 5% right. And the Hollywood Reporter article that I was reading about that said that that scene, if you had written that line, every religion got about 5% right. If you'd written that line in a show in 1986, it would have gotten tremendous pushback from the audience, from audience members, from Americans. And the Hollywood Reporter article said, but today no one said a word. We put it in the, we put it in the script. Ted Danson said it and no one had a problem with it. We didn't get any emails, no pushback whatsoever. It's a testament. I bring it up because it's a testament. It's a revealing testimony to the rapid onset of religious pluralism in our culture that has overtaken the United States of America, the cultural West. Okay. And as I said last night on the deep end, there's no getting away from Jesus and who he is and what he has done in human history. It is 2023. If you're listening to this in the future, I am recording this in February of 2023, a day after Valentine's Day. And it is 2,023 years since Jesus Christ, the son of the most high God, the one who divides history before Christ, after Christ. It is Anno Domine, the year of our Lord, the year of our <laughs> Lord. So there's no getting away from this. And all these attempts to be religiously pluralistic and kind of culturally with it and, you know, following the trends of people's hearts and what they feel is right spiritually is nothing new. It is regression. And to that culture, we need to speak as God chose to speak in the times of Omri, Om, Omri and Ahab. How does God choose to speak in a religiously pluralistic society? Well, that brings me to the text. And what does it reveal in verse one? Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Boom. Like this is gauntlet getting thrown down. And there's no mincing words. That's what we're supposed to pick up here right on the off the bat. Uh, how Elijah speaks as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. There shall be neither do nor rain all these years except by my word. And this is going to be the guy who is, who takes center stage from all the wicked Kings of Israel. Now, who was Elijah? He comes out of nowhere. Tishbe, uh, the word Tishbe can refer to a rocky area, a rocky terrain to the east side of the Jordan river. The name Elijah means the Lord is God. And in fact, that's what they would chant on Mount Carmel. When the fire falls, they'll say the Lord, he is God. They're actually literally chanting Elijah, 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 the Lord is God. Okay. So Tishbe uh, means, um, sorry, I, I made a mistake. I just misspoke. Tishbe means stranger in Hebrew. And some commentators believe that Elijah wasn't even an Israelite. He might've been a immigrant or a convert to Judaism. We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. It just says that he's from the land of Tishbe. Tishbe means stranger. And Tishbe is in Gilead. Gilead was a rocky place, again, on the east side of the Jordan River. And Elijah just shows up. He just kind of comes out of nowhere. No mention of his father or his genealogy. Why is that important? Because in the ancient world and even up until the time of Christ, your father defined who you were. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the first phrase in the New Testament. Uh, David was the son of Jesse. Solomon was the son of David, right? These are important names. Saul was the son of Kish, 
Okay, your your father defined you. Elijah, I'm sorry, Elijah does not even have a genealogy attributed to him. Another reason why commentators believe he might not have been an Israelite. But the fact of the matter is, is that when he speaks for God, that is his authority. It is not his genealogy. It is not his background. And so from here on out, again, like I said, from 1 Kings chapter 17 to 2 Kings chapter 9, the prophets will take center stage and the prophets will be the, the move, movement makers for Israel's history. That's how it works, by the way. And the church needs to wake up to this. The church of Jesus Christ needs to wake up to the fact that this is how God works in a pluralistic society. You need to speak f- uh, firmly, authoritatively, and, and not mince words to a pluralistic society. Look, you, you can't play games with people who take God lightly. You have to actually speak much more forcefully, not hatefully, not antagonistically, but clearly and firmly and rooted in the conviction that this is true. That's the first thing that we see in Elijah. And he's a total contrast to Omri, who embraced all religions and everybody was the same, right? Now, what does Elijah refer to first? He says, there's going to be neither do nor rain except by my word. Now, why is that important? That is important for one particular reason. That is because the Baals were being worshipped. Baal was being worshipped. The, the Baals, there are several of them, but the chief deity called Baal in, in Canaan was the god of rain and the god of storms. He created rains. Uh, if there was no rain, okay, and, and there were seasons every year where there was no rain, but there would also be years where there was no rain. They believed that it was because the God of death, Mot, had killed Baal. And so every time the rains came back, it was a sign that Anat, this is very confusing, but Anat, in partnership with the sun goddess Shaphash, had revived Baal from the dead after Mot had killed him. Mot, the God of death. Okay, and this is all going to come, I'm sharing all this for a reason as we go through this text. So the God of death kills Baal every year and it revives him. The rains fall and every once in a while there's like a little bit of a drought. And so that was because, you know, Anat and Shaphash had a hard time bringing him back from the dead. And what you have to understand about Baal is that whereas former kings introduced, beginning with Solomon, by the way, introduced Baal worship to the, to the land of Israel, um, Jezebel didn't want to just add Baal worship to Israel's religious structure. She wanted to replace the God of Israel. And that is where Elijah, I'm sorry, where Israel crosses a line and God starts to say, okay, now I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to wake you up and I'm going to reserve for myself a people from, from amongst this dark season of, of history. I'm going to bring back a people for myself. Because Jezebel, that's what, he, that's what she wanted to do, replace. Where is she from? She's from Sidon. She's the, son, she's the daughter of the king of Sidon. And she's probably the daughter of a high priest as well. So he's probably a high priest and king of a, of a pagan nation who worships Baal. And she comes into Israel and she introduces not just worship of Baal, but she wants to remove okay, the prophets of God. She wants to remove the worship of Yahweh. That's what separated Jezebel and Ahab from Solomon, by the way. Solomon, again, he, he added it. Jezebel and Ahab were trying to replace it. And so Elijah says, okay, here's, here's what's going down. Are you ready? There's going to be no wind, uh, rain. There's going to be no dew except by my word. And what is he doing? He's not just performing some magician's trick. He is shutting up the false claims of Baal. He is saying Baal is powerless. 
as all other religions are. No other religion can give you what God can give you, okay? And this is why we need to speak powerfully, forcefully, firmly, and with conviction to a pluralistic society. Because if we placate a pluralistic society, they're the ones that miss out on the goodness of God. Some Christians have a hard time sharing their faith. Maybe you're one of them. And you think, I don't want to offend them. Okay, but wait a second. You have the cure to their spiritual cancer. They may not believe you, but that's not up to you. How could you not share the cure to their spiritual cancer? I think of the, the magician duo Penn and Teller. I think they're a comic magician duo. And Penn is a avid atheist. And there's, there's a uh, interview with him talking about how he's offended when he's not proselytized by Christians. He's like, you, you believe that this is going to get me to heaven and you don't share that with me? Like, how little do you believe it if that's the case? And, and a lot of Christians are like that today more than ever before. I don't know if I should share this. Look, it, I'm going to tell you that <laughs> there's going to be someone who can benefit from you speaking up even if it doesn't seem like that. The, the, the enemy, of course, he wants you to feel insecure in your faith. He wants you to feel like you have nothing to offer. He wants you to feel like you're going to be offensive to people because when you feel those things, he wins. He gets you to shut your mouth. He gets the cancer treatment um, away from the cancer patient. And I'm talking about spiritual cancer. And you've got to do and listen to scripture here and, and wake up and serve and use what God has given you to speak up. I think we are struggling more than ever before with this because we look at our culture and the pluralism of our culture and we think, okay, that, that means we should just, we should kind of go along with it. No, that's not how God works. That's not how God worked in the times of Elijah. Why would he change course now just because it's 2023? Anyway, that's the opening word of Elijah. Now we're going on to verse two. And the word of the Lord came to him. Now, this is Elijah. He just shut up the heavens from rain to shut and silence the mouth of Baal. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Oh, this is so good. There's a lot here. And it looks like the, that God is telling the prophet to hide. He's not. There's a lot here that we have, we've got to unpack. Um, he's not hiding. God is uh, cutting away from Elijah every other trust, every other source. And the reason why I know that is because the brook Cherith, the word Cherith means to cut, cutting. And this is what God is doing. I'm going to cut away from you everything in culture that could possibly distort your testimony for me. This is going to be a three-year process, by the way. How long does Jesus walk with the disciples? Three years. And the, and the drought in Israel is going to last three years. And James tells us that he prays that the drought will last for three years. And it does last for three years. So God is bringing him to a place of cutting away. This is how God works with his servants, by the way. This is how God works with you. He cuts out of you the things that you are depending on that are not of him so that he can use you to influence people who reject him. Did you catch that? Right now, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, I am telling you that God is in the process of cutting things away from you that you are depending on that are not of him so that he can use you to influence people who currently reject him. And God is going to show Elijah, I am the provider. I am the provider in the midst of drought. Go and go to this river, go to this, this brook, Cherith. And I've also directed the ravens to feed. How about that? Talk about 
Uber Eats heaven style. Yes? Talk about DoorDash from the divine. And I'm just making that up off the top of my head. <laughs> I did not have that um, prepared. Ravens are going to Uber Eats for Elijah. Now, why? A couple of things about Ravens that I want to share from, from uh, some just scientific fact. Number one, Ravens mate for life. Here's a picture of fidelity. Here's a, a, an animal. It's a picture of what God wants from Israel. You and I for life. They can, they're crafty. They're smart. Uh, biologists tell us this. I, I looked all this stuff, uh, stuff up online just before doing this content. They're able to live in isolation for years at a time. The reason why is because they're very good at scavenging, scavenging for food for miles away and coming back and bringing back to where they nest. They are also considered unclean according to the law. Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14 tell us that these birds in particular were unclean. You couldn't eat them. And they're also now known even today as a symbol of death. You think about Edgar Allan Poe, his obsession with the raven, uh, nevermore, right? Uh, it is a picture of death. It's a symbol of death. And what, what does a drought mean? What does a drought mean in ancient Israel at this time, in ancient Cana, Canaan in this time? It meant that Mot, the god of death, had defeated Baal. See, I told you it all comes full circle here. So they are experiencing a drought, and they think right now that the god of death is winning, and, and the God of Israel is actually using a symbol of death to bring life to his chosen prophet. When you stand for God, this is what happens. God miraculously uses all the instrumentality of this world to provide for you according to his purposes and plan and to make you a testimony of his goodness to the people around you. God uses this bird and it says... Uh, we've got to, we've got to go to the next verse here. It says, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him uh, bread and meat in the morning. And then, and then notice this and bread and meat in the evening. There's an important point right there in just a moment. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Okay. A couple of things here that we just want to note. Bread and meat in the morning is a reference to something that happened earlier in Israel's history. Can you think of it? In the Exodus wanderings, God brings them out of Egypt, delivers them through the Red Sea, drowns Pharaoh's army, and they go into the wilderness. And they're in the wilderness, and they start getting hungry, and God says, okay, manna in the morning. Manna comes in the morning. Then they get thirsty, water from the rock, right? And, and then they complain that they're sick of the manna, so God brings them quail, meat. It just falls. Well, in the wilderness wanderings, the people of Israel were also being cut away from depending on all the things that they depended on in Egypt. See, this is a, a process that, that Christians don't often think about, but it is a necessary process in the work of sanctification and discipleship. God is going to bring you out from what you depended on in your own old life, isolate you with himself, within your Christian community or yourself personally, and cause you to learn to live with less, but he's there. Live on the basic necessities of development. This is how God prepares you, strengthens you, builds your faith. Your faith does not grow when everything's abounding. Your faith grows when it's morning by morning. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Give us this day our 
daily bread, right? What is Jesus saying? I want you to develop, I want you to cultivate a heart of daily dependence on me. I don't want you to pray for a week's worth of bread. I want you to pray for a day's worth of bread so that you can learn every day that today is the day to depend on God. And that is the point here for uh, Elijah. But guess what? The point that I, I underlined here on verse six, he got double doses. He got bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And the reason why I think is because God was just being generous to his prophet who was standing up for him in a time of religious pluralism. And this has potential for your life. I believe the more you depend on God, the more he blesses your life in an age where he needs and he is looking for, not that he needs anything, but that he's looking for people who will stand for him in dark seasons. And, and when we stand, the darker the season, when we stand, I believe the benefit is greater. The blessing is greater. So he's getting water from the ravine and eventually it dries up. And you have to think about that place. Like he is thinking, what am I doing? The, the, the brook is just progressively going down. And that's exactly what happens in our lives when God wants to cut away things from us. He just, he slowly removes the things that we're trusting in, right? That's some of you. Some of you are new to the faith. God is slowly removing the relationships that you were, that you had before in your old life. And, and where are those friends now? And how come I'm feeling so alone? And how come I'm feeling so isolated? And how come I don't have all the, because God is letting the brook come down. Or maybe the money right now is coming down and the tightening because of inflation, because of our economy, the tightening of your financial life is happening and the, and the brook is going down. And the question is simply this, will you trust in the Lord in the midst of the, the uh, depreciation, if you will, of the things of this world that you might depend on? Okay, so God's not done. As the brook dries up, verse eight says this, then the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to where? <laughs> this is incredible. Sidon. Okay, I'm going to show you why that's important. And dwell there. Behold, I have commanded, again, another command from God, first the raven, now the widow, to feed you there. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a woman was, a woman was there gathering sticks. What is going on here? Well, let's, let's go back to the Bible cam, the Lagos cam. And let's remember here, who is Jezebel? The scripture says, that she is the daughter of Ethbaal, and she is uh, from the, uh, and Ethbaal is the king of the Sidonians. So where again is Elijah sent? This is phenomenally important. He is sent to Sidon. Elijah is sent to the very place where Jezebel is from. And when he gets there, I mean, he's, right under at the doorstep of Jezebel's hometown of, of, of her father's hometown. And when he gets there, he's going to minister to a widow from Jezebel's nation. This is a very incredible moment because God is speaking through this text. And there's going to be one person in the new Testament who references this text for a reason. Okay. The person who references it, of course, is Jesus. I don't know if you remember, but when he goes to his hometown, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But when he goes to his hometown, uh, it says that the people reject him and Jesus uses this text as kind of a, a rebuke to them because he's got a worldwide mission, not just a, a, a mission to the Jews. Luke chapter four, verse 25. In truth, I tell you, 
There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. What is Jesus doing there? He's saying to his native people, he's saying to the Jews, his, his hometown, I'm not just here for you. The call of God in my life is greater than just the prosperity of Israel. Israel was to be a blessing to the nations that all nations of the earth might be blessed through them, the Abrahamic covenant, right? And they light to the Gentiles, the prophecy of Isaiah. And Jesus comes and starts to fulfill that. And he's sending a message. And by the way, that's why in Luke chapter four, immediately after this, they, they gnash their teeth and they bring him up to the, to the edge of a, a cliff and they got, they're about to throw him down off the cliff because they are offended that God would show grace and mercy to other nations. But all, it, all Jesus is doing is fulfilling the prophecies and the, the mission of Elijah. Let me put this map here up on the screen just so you can know. He went from the Cherith Ravine all the way to the north to the area of Tyre and Sidon and Zarephath, a little city down south of Sidon, the capital of Tyre, where Jezebel is from. That's where, that's where uh, Elijah is ministering now. And he meets a woman and she is uh, gathering sticks, the scripture says. Let me put this back up the screen. She's gathering sticks and she's about to die. Look at what it says here in verse 10. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And here's her testimony. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Uh, that's pretty destitute. Yeah. So this woman is on the edge of death. She's got a kid. She has a house. So she's not, at least she wasn't poor before, but now she's probably destitute because she has nothing to eat. She's thinking, I got one uh, sack of groceries left. I got this much supply left. And now I'm going to die. I'm going to eat this. We're going to starve to death. And, and what does Elijah say? Do not fear. Verse 13. Do not fear and do as you have said, but... And this I cannot stress enough, but first, okay, first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. This is incredibly powerful moment for this woman and ultimately for Elijah and ultimately for us. God, through Elijah, calls on this woman to act in faith in response to the word of the Lord. And she's a pagan. She's from Sidon. She's from Jezebel's home country. And the question is simply this. Will you trust this God first? The, the word first is important because this is a reference to, and I believe it, to putting God first financially. What did she have financially? She had a little jug of oil and some, and some flour. She had one meal left. And, and, and the test of faith is, will you put God first? Will you put God's word first in your life? The question for you is that, will you put God's word first in your life? How do we put God first in our lives today in modern America where we are not usually down to one last meal, where we usually have plenty? We put him first uh, financially when we trust him with the tithe. The tithe is what scripture refers to as our first fruits. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Uh, trust in the Lord with your first, honor the Lord with your first fruits, with the, with, the, with the beginnings of your increase, and he will make your vats to overflow with new wines and your barns filled with plenty. 
uh, Malachi chapter 10, uh, chapter three, verse 10. Uh, test me in this and uh, bring in the whole tithe. Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out such a blessing that you cannot contain it. And I will rebuke the devourer from you and it will not harm you, right? Uh, um, bring in God's first. The firstborn of the flocks belong to God. The firstborn son belong to God. Everything that we get first belongs to God. And some Christians need to learn this principle, not <laughs> because the church needs your money. Okay, I am a leader of a church. I'm a pastor of a church that tithes. We take in offerings from the people and we take 10% of everything that comes in and it goes out of our building. It goes out of our church to foreign missions, to global missions, to domestic missions, to organizations that help preach the gospel and save people's lives. And our church has exploded since we started doing that with financial increase. I can just testify to you that before we did that, we were week to week, <laughs> week to week with income. And we started to give and trust God and, and, and tithe the 10th. That's what tithe means, by the way, a 10th. And the increase just exploded in our church's life. I know I get it. People get touchy when the church talks about money, but <laughs> you never have to give anything to be part of the church. And it's really not a part, it's not really about the church getting money out of you. It's about your heart. Elijah tests this woman, first make me. I mean, think about this from just a kind of like common sense point of view. How dare Elijah ask this poor widow for her last meal to make a cake for him? It sounds audacious. The tithe sounds audacious to unspiritual people. But this woman responds Positively, that's the, that's the powerful thing about this passage in verse 15. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. You see, you're either going to get touchy about money or you're going to start trusting God with money. That's really what it comes down to. And it's not about you. And scripture talks about this. It's a principle of life, Proverbs eleven twenty four. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. You ever see people, they hoard and they hold on and they get nasty and gnarly and they don't see the generosity of God because they're not generous. This is a place that a lot of Christians have to get to in order to see God take them to another place in their faith. I, I believe this with all of my heart. You're only going to experience so much of the Christian life in the faith that God wants to give you until you start tithing and giving what God has poured out into your life. I, 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 um, I shared this story with my church when we were doing a series on money back in December. Uh, my wife and I were blessed exceedingly in 2022. We sold a house for way more than we paid for it. We should not have been blessed this way. We are not smart enough to get this blessed. I'm telling you, I am not a real estate guru. I'm not an investment specialist. In fact, many of my investments like yours probably are all down, way down after 2022. But the Lord poured out this blessing on us and it was like a no brainer. We're going to tithe 10% of that money that we made on that house. And we did. And I wrote the check. It was the first thing out. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that. And it came rushing back in. That, that wasn't the point. I didn't get that amount of money right back into my account. That was not the point of doing it. The point of doing it was only God provided that. 
Only God made that happen. We are not smart enough. He is our source. And he provided the context and the conditions to make that happen in my life. And so to give him the 10th was a no-brainer. And then I thought about a week later about that amount that I wrote, the check that I wrote. And it suddenly came to me and it kind of like the Lord brought it to my attention. That check was more than my entire year's salary, my first year in ministry. It was uh, about 20% more actually than my entire first year salary in church ministry work. Only God can do that. My, my, my friends, I'm trying to encourage you here that there are these stories in the Bible matter because the question we have to answer in our lives is simply this, who is our trust? Amazingly, as Israel goes pagan, a pagan goes faithful. Isn't that incredible? Israel is worshiping the God of the Sidonians and a, and a woman who lives under that nation that worships the God of Sidonians starts to trust the God of Israel and God blesses her and supplies all of her needs. And the same can be true for you. The Christians that I know that advance vocationally, the Christians that I see God bless are tithers. I, I have a conversation, a text conversation going right now with someone in my, in my church. Uh, they moved to Florida to start a church with us. And God is just blessing this gentleman. And I'm not going to go into any details because I don't know if he wants me to share any details. But he's talking about how way before he ever expected, he's going to be able to launch out on his own and start a business in, in his field. And he's just blown away. But he's a tither. He's a tither. He's talked about it. He's testified to it at our church. He's a God-honoring person. And God honors those who honor him. That's in 1 Samuel. You honor him with the time. He honors you in your life. So now, I bet you're thinking, oh, yes. And it went all well for her and happily ever after. And she tied and she learned that God would always provide. And then that was it. That was her story. Nope. That's not where 1 Kings chapter 17 leaves us. Look at verse 17. After this, after what? After she had baked the cake for the prophet by faith, basically tithed to him first, and then God provided all of her needs. After that, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Her son died. Her son died after what? After she trusted God. And then she said to Elijah, what have you against me? Oh, man of God. Now, let's stop there before we read anymore, because there's an important trajectory here for many Christians to pick up on. You obey God. You do what he says. You trust him. You, you, you maybe you tithe or whatever you're doing to trust God. And then disaster happens. My question now is, and the question the text is best beg, begging us to ask is, what's your response then? Are you going to blame God? Are you going to blame God's prophet? Are you going to lash out? Are you going to say, well, that's what I get for obeying God. Like many immature Christians do. Or are you going to do what this woman does? And I love her sentence to Elijah. It is profoundly powerful. She says, what have you against me, O man of God? Uh, you have come. Uh, sorry. Yeah. You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. That's her, that's her statement. Is that what I, I'm saying it in the form of a question? Because basically it is a question. She's basically saying, look, why did you come and tell God about my sin? Now, she, is, she knows that she needs an intercessor between her and, and God. And she now has also 
reveal that she believes that she is a sinner because that's what she says to Elijah. Why did you tell God that I'm a sinner? Why did you, why did you remind God that I'm a sinner? Because I deserve death. My son deserves death. I'm a sinner. This is incredibly important. She is making a statement of faith about the human condition that most Americans won't make. make. And that is this. I am a sinner worthy of death. I need someone to intercede for me on behalf of my spiritual condition and save me from the consequences of my sins. And that is who Jesus is. In her case, it's Elijah, a picture of Christ, but she is not lashing out at God. She is not claiming innocence like she's getting her, things are acting unjustly in her, in her life, that God has not treated her fairly. She's making a profound statement. I am not a victim. Death should come because of my sins and prophet, why did you tell God? Why did you remind him about that? Like, that's her statement. Her statement is not, why would God do this to me? Her statement is, why did you remind him that I'm a sinner? Because I know I deserve death. I know I don't deserve anything from him. What a picture of biblical faith, friends, from a Sidonian widow, from a pagan. She's exhibiting more faith in the God of Israel than Israel is. And faith is acknowledging I don't deserve. I am not worthy. That is faith. That is biblical faith. And in a nation of perpetual victimhood, where everyone is trying to vie for the checkboxes of more victimhood, this is probably the one of the greatest acts of faith that we can act that, that we can enact. Is not to claim victimhood or blame God or others for our problems, but rather to see ourselves as sinners unworthy of anything from God. And yet when things happen that are bad to us. We can look to the men and the women of God that he sends to us. Why did you come? Is this the way you came? What have you got against me? You, you brought my sins to remembrance. I don't deserve anything. I know I'm a sinner. I know this should have happened to me. And then verse 19, and he said to her, give me your son. And he took him up and he took her, uh, I'm sorry. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. Verse 20 says this, and he cried, O Lord, he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. Okay, quick tidbit. This is the first resurrection in the Bible. Some people don't even realize that. In fact, I didn't even realize that until I studied this text today. This is the first resurrection. The first resurrection is a, a, the son of a pagan woman who put faith in God, put him first financially and welcomed the prophet of God into her life. And her son is brought back to life. How? Well, Elijah cries out to the Lord, but he does more. What does he do? He covers, he lays on top of the body of the dead child. Now you have to understand that the law forbidden Israelites from touching dead bodies, they would make them unclean. It was outlawed because you would be associating yourself with death. Here's what Elijah is doing. He is becoming a picture of the cross. The cross is where Christ tasted death for all of us. That's Hebrews chapter two, uh, verse 14. It says that he uh, partook in death. He tasted of death, that, that he might destroy the one who, is, who has the power of death. What does Christ do with the cross? He identifies with us in our sin. Two, uh, he who knew no sin became sin. On him, God laid the sins of the world. He became a curse for us, right? He touched death, he tasted death, and he was judged as a sinner on the cross for us sinners, even though he was not a sinner and was perfect and blameless. 
Elijah is becoming a picture of Christ here, identifying with the death of the son to raise him back to life. And when he identifies through the, with, the, with the son in death, the son comes back to life. That is how we are saved. Jesus identifies with us in death, becoming sin for us so that we, by believing in him, might be raised from death to life. So this woman, and I just want you to think how powerful this is. This is a pagan widow from Sidon, Jezebel's hometown, Jezebel's home country. She goes from her last meal to seeing her son raised from the dead and provided for for three years, miraculously. Kind of a little bit of a knock, if you will, on God's people. As if God is saying to them, you won't listen, I'll find somebody who will. And I have found that that is really all that God is looking for. In your life, in my life, he's just looking for people who will rely on him. And when you do, you will see his provision, his power, and ultimately his resurrection in your life. Who are you relying on? Who is your source? That is what 1 Kings chapter 17 is about. Verse 23 Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. She is converted. She is in heaven. She, not Israel, not God's own chosen people, sons and daughters of Abraham. This pagan Sidonian widow is now a daughter of the most high God. It does not have anything to do with where you come from or where you live. It has everything to do with what you believe and who is your source. So with that in mind, let's tap into truth. Okay, let's talk about a couple of things. The cutting moments of God, the cutting moments. God has you on the cutting floor. Uh, this is how he makes you holy. This is what sanctification is. It is him separating or cutting away things of this world from your heart. Let's take a look at the moments in this chapter. Elijah is cut away from Israel because he has to go and dwell in the Cherith Ravine. And then he goes to the Sidonian nation. He goes to Zarephath and Sidon. Uh, Israel is cut away from rain and prosperity. Oh, by the way, Elijah is cut away from the brook. He's cut away from the raven's food. Uh, and then Israel is cut away from rain and prosperity. The widow is cut away from a future because she's about to eat her last meal and die and her son is going to die with her. And then the widow's son is cut away from life. So the question is simply this. Why does God cut? Why does God cut? Do you know why? Because you're useful to God to the extent that you depend on God. Now that sounds, you know, don't take that harshly, but it's an, it's an important spiritual principle. In fact, God loves you enough to cut you so that he can use you, cut you away from depending on the things of this world that make you, that you think make you who you are, whether it be social media likes or friends or financial blessings or prosperity in your job or what he cuts those things away so that you can learn to depend on him because, because here's the little secret. Here's the little secret. Ready? <laughs> if you cannot depend on God when you've got little, you will never depend on God when you've got much. Uh, Thomas Carlyle famously said, for every 100 men uh, who can trust God in poverty, there's one man who can trust God in prosperity. Let me say that again. For every 100 men who can trust God in poverty, there is one man who can trust God in prosperity. 
because it's easier to trust God in poverty than it is in prosperity. Prosperity often leads God's people and just regular people away from trusting him. They, they blind us. And so what God does in his grace and mercy, when he wants to bless you and use you greatly, he cuts you deeply. God, this is the point, will cut you deeply in order to use you greatly. And this is this phrase is a total ripoff from A.W. Tozer, a great preacher in the last century, who said, it is doubtful whether, whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. So God will cut you deeply in order to use you greatly. Look at God's greatest heroes. Abraham had to be cut down. His name Abram meant exalted father. His name Abraham meant father of many nations. And he had to be cut down, cut down, cut down as year after year after year after year went on and he had no son until to the point where he was as good as dead, Hebrew says. His body was as good as dead and then God gave him Isaac. And then by the way, after Sarah dies, he marries a couple other women. He shouldn't have married many women, but he married a couple of women and he produced other offspring later in life. He was cut down, he was cut down, he was cut down and God used him greatly. Sarah too. Sarah had to be cut down and her womb was as good as dead and then life came into her. Gideon had to be cut down, right? Gideon, the great judge of Israel in Judges chapter six, cut down from an army of 33,000 to 200. God cut him down and then he defeated the Midianites. I'm sorry, with 300, not 200, 300 soldiers. David had to be cut down and, and get all the way to the place of the cave of Adullam to the point where he totally de depended on God and then God raised him up. Peter had to be cut down with his mouth, right? His mouth was always getting him into trouble, always speaking at the wrong time. And God is like, okay, we're gonna, Jesus is like, okay, we're going to take this thing, this issue of your mouth getting you in trouble, and we're going to cut it out. And you're going to deny me three times, but I'm going to restore you with your very mouth, with, with that same mouth. And then you're going to preach and thousands will be saved. What is God cutting away from you right now? If you're brave enough, put it in the chat. If you're not, no problem. But what might God be cutting away from you right now? What are you depending on that you need to stop depending on? What are you looking to, to provide, to substantiate, to validate your life that you need to say, stop kicking against the goats, stop fighting God in this and let the surgeon tool go to work in your life. Can I just advise you in the process, be patient because God is not just cutting you, he's preparing you. And, and that's the point. He cuts you deeply to use you greatly. You will not be used greatly until he cuts you deeply. There's a story, it's a little funny story. I wanted to share it with you. A little bird was flying south for the winter and he got a late start. And unfortunately, he got caught in a snowstorm. It was an ice storm. It was really bad. And he, when his wings got soaked and then they froze and he couldn't even fly. And he was sitting there on the ground thinking, oh, great, now I'm going to die. And then a cow came by the very pasture that he was sitting there frozen, freezing to death. And the cow took a dump <laughs> on the bird. And so now the bird went from freezing to warm in the manure of the, of the cow and his wings thawed out and he got so excited that he decided to chirp and sing about the benefits of being warmed up again. But his singing attracted a cat and the cat comes along and picks him up out of that manure and eats the bird. A sad story indeed. <laughs> Don't worry, it's fake. But there are three lessons from this story. Lesson number one. Not everyone who drops you in manure, I'm sorry, not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Number two, not everyone who digs you out is your friend. And number three, when you're in manure, shut up. <laughs> All right, I hope you get a kick out of that as I did. But you, you, you've got to be patient in the process of God's cutting. Uh, 
you don't need what he's cutting away. So stop crying about it. I know you think you need it. That's your old flesh saying you need it. Oh, I can't live without this. No, you don't. You don't need that at all. God knows you don't need that. That's why he's taking it away from you. You need him. He's, he's, trying, to, he's trying to teach you. And so the last question I want to leave you with today is this. The lessons of the cutting room. What is God trying to teach you? Well, he's trying to get you to answer a few questions. Is God enough? Am I enough right now in your life? He's teaching us that. He's asking us that question to teach us to depend on him. Number two, is God greater than what's around me or facing me? Is God greater than this nation that I'm living in, this culture that I'm living in? Okay, is God greater than the money that I'm making? And that's teaching me to listen to him. Number three, is God able to do more than I realize? That's teaching me to seek him. He's more powerful. The woman who fed Elijah first learned that Elijah's God was strong enough to feed her and then strong enough to raise her son to life again. And then number four is, is God faithful in every season? Because the cutting season is only one season. You're going to have many of these seasons. It comes and it goes. And I have learned the hard way too. I, I, I love the blessing seasons of God, but even after the blessing seasons, there's a, there's a repeat. God sometimes makes you repeat the cutting season so they can prepare you for a greater season yet to come. I think of the apostle Paul who had a great ministry. And then he had this exceedingly great revelation of going to the third heaven and visiting heaven. And he comes back to tell us about it. And he says, I heard things that I can't even utter, things that are too remarkable for human ears. And then what does he say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? This is a very powerful uh, passage. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. In other words, let me say it another way. This messenger of Satan came to cut away pride to cut away spiritual pride from me. And I prayed, he says, like three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect. Where? In weakness. So Paul says, I didn't blame God now. I didn't rail against God. No, I said, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's refinement process is his preparation process in your life. And if you are feeling cut right now by whatever you're going through, be patient, be optimistic, be hopeful. He is teaching you that he alone is your source and he's going to use what you learn in the cutting season to empower you for a blessing season so that you can impact a world that has grown deaf to the power of God. Amen. That's the show. Thanks for being here. So glad that you are here. If you want to support the channel, you know how to do it. It's always there for you. Cash app, Tim Hatch Live, timhatchlive.com slash support. My new book, Ending Emptiness, is coming out very soon. I am excited for that. And I'm excited that you were here. Another way that you can support the channel, as always, is to like the video. Please, please, please subscribe or share the content on your social media because that's how we get the word out. They are, I don't know if you watched the deep end last night, but they are removing our content all the time. My most popular video on TikTok, 677,000 views was just removed without explanation. We can't appeal it. So you can help us by sharing this content on your social media channel. And if you're in the cutting season, I pray that you learn to depend on God and he graciously gives you the power you need to change your world and the people around you through the power of Jesus Christ. God bless you. Have a good night in Jesus' name.